Okay, good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and get started. It looks like we're at the three o'clock hour, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. First of all, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, the City Commission is considering an ordinance that could impact um, landlords, and we wanted to reach out and hear from landlords and have an opportunity to answer your questions. I know our City Commission values very much public engagement, and they want to hear from all points of view. Um, before they enact a law that could have impact throughout the city. So um, we have purposely structured this meeting to not have a lot of long presentations, but rather to leave time for you to an ask your questions and, and have answers. We have assembled a panel here um, that is available to answer questions for you. Um, I'm going to turn it over here shortly, but I do want to sort of explain how today's going to go, um, just so you sort of have an idea. Um, today we're going to start, I'm going to give a, just a brief background of how this ordinance came to be. Um, one of our assistant city attorneys, Zach Friedel, will give an overview of the ordinance that many of you have paper copies of. Then we're going to open it up to questions for our panel, if you have any. And then finally, we'll close today's meeting by telling you what the next steps are, what's happening next. Um, if you're interested in this ordinance, I wanna just make sure that you are aware that the City Commission will have this back on its agenda on Tuesday, January 17th. You are all welcome to come to that meeting and provide comments um, or provide written comments in advance. So mark that date in your calendar if you're interested in this ordinance, Tuesday, January 17th. Um, as I said, we do have a panel of experts here to help answer any questions that you might have. Um, and I'll just um, read out their names and their titles and I'll ask them to wave to you. We have Zach Friedel, Assistant City Attorney. Shannon Aury, the Executive Director of the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority. Katie Barnett, the current Chair of the Human Relations Commission. Kalina Coleman, the City's Organizational and Equity Coordinator. Trini Westcott from the City Planning and Development Services Department, um, who works with our rental licensing program. And then Mariel Ferreiro, the finance manager and landlord liaison for the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority. Okay. All right, so how did this ordinance 9960 come about? This started with our Lawrence Human Relations Commission. The Human Relations Commission is an advisory board to the City Commission. It's comprised of nine community members who are volunteers. They studied this topic and some other policy matters for over two years, and they recommended that an ordinance similar to the one that is before you and the Commission um, be adopted. On December 13th of 2022, the City Commission heard a presentation from Katie Barnett, the chair, um, on a whole host of policy recommendations that the Human Relations Commission was making um, with this type of ordinance one being one of them. And then they heard a presentation from Zach um, regarding the ordinance. The commission at that time wanted to pause and have an opportunity to reach out to the landlord community in particular and um, make sure that you're aware that this ordinance is being considered and contemplated and have an opportunity for you to weigh in and provide comment before they take final action on it. So that's what we're here today to do. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Zach Fidel, and he's going to walk through sort of the main uh, components of the ordinance, and then we'll open it up to questions. Can I jump in there, Tony? Yes. So if you are here and you already know that you have a question that you want to ask, there's a sign-up sheet at the podium. Feel free to jump up and put your name on that list. 
And when we get to the Q&A portion, I will call on folks in the order they signed up. So if you know you want to ask a question, feel free to sign up now. Or if any point during the presentation a question occurs to you, go ahead and get your name on that list. Thanks, folks. Over to you, Zach. Excellent. Well, good afternoon. Like Tony said, I'm Zach Friedel, Assistant City Attorney. I provided the commission a brief of this ordinance at their meeting on December 13th. And so I'm going to largely repeat that today. I'm sorry if you're hearing it twice, but want to go over what the ordinance says and what it does. To start off, as a brief overview of sorts of income anti-discrimination laws generally, these are laws that prohibit landlords from discriminating against tenants based on their source of income, and that means the job that they hold or the type of income they're receiving, including if that is government assistance. Government assistance programs come in many forms, but two of the most common are veterans assistance programs and Section 8 housing vouchers. So the purpose of these laws is to create more housing availability for voucher recipients, to allow mobility for voucher recipients, and to combat racial and economic segregation that can result from the refusal of landlords to accept vouchers in certain neighborhoods. Source of income protection is one that is provided for in state law in at least 20 states with more pending along with dozens of cities across the, the country. A version was introduced in the Kansas House in 2021 but didn't receive a hearing. There are no other cities in Kansas with a similar source of income ordinance. So to turn to the ordinance that the commission is considering, 9960, it has two main provisions. The first and primary is to incorporate source of income as a factor that cannot be discriminated against under city code. The second, and one that is primarily enacted by state statute, is protections provided to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, or stalking. So this is accomplished by making changes to chapter 10. This is a chapter of city code that relates to discrimination in housing, employment, and city services. So chapter 10 currently prohibits discrimination based on race, sex, religion, color, national origin, age, ancestry, familial status, sexual orientation, disability, or gender identity. This, income, this ordinance would add source of income as a basis that cannot be discriminated against in terms of housing. So the theme you'll see if you're looking at the ordinance is that in each of the sections that relates to housing, this ordinance adds source of income. Going through it, the definition of source of income is in subsection 102.32. The goal is to have a definition broad enough to include multiple sources of potential incomes. In this case, it includes, but is not limited to, money derived from any lawful profession, occupation, or activity, money derived from any contract, agreement, loan, settlement, court order, gift, grant, bequest, annuity, or life insurance policy, or money derived from any benefit or subsidy program. This ordinance goes on to give examples of benefit and subsidy programs that applicants or tenants could use as a source of income. The list is not exhaustive, but the language is intended to include all legal sources of income. Specifically, it would include Section 8 vouchers, which have been a focus of the majority of the conversations. So what does it mean to not discriminate based on source of income? The ordinance goes on to explain that what would be prohibited under this ordinance. It specifically addresses how landlords cannot prevent tenants from renting the property based on their source of income, or publish rental listings with language such as no vouchers accepted. It would also be unlawful to change the terms or conditions of a rental or sale based on the renter or purchaser's source of income. The same is true for financial assistance or a loan. 
subsection 111.13 adds that it is an unlawful violation to refuse to comply with the administrative requirements of assistance programs, including but not limited to inspections. That would include the required inspections by the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority as they administer the Section 8 voucher program. Subsection 111.16 adds the protected basis in housing for older persons. Subsection 111.18 clarifies that the provisions of this section do not prevent landlords from participating in government-sponsored rental assistance programs. That is, if they already have units set aside for tenants who qualify for the programs, they can continue to do so. Finally, in relation to source of income, subsection 111.19 states that nothing in this ordinance shall control the amount of rent charged or the purchase price agreed between parties to a transaction for the lease or purchase of privately owned residential or commercial property. So this is in response to a state law that was uh, enacted at KSA 12.16.120 that prohibits municipalities from taking such actions. So to be clear, that's saying that this does not change the rent or purchase price and does not control the rent or purchase price for any property. The other protections provided by this ordinance are for victims of sexual assault, human trafficking, or stalking. That's accomplished by reference to a state law. It's codified at KSA 5825-137. That statute uh, passed in 2019 states that an applicant shall not be denied tenancy on the basis of, or as the direct result of, the fact that the applicant is a protected person if the applicant otherwise qualifies for tenancy or occupancy of the premises. And a tenant or lessee shall not be evicted from the premises or found to be in violation of a rental or lease agreements, lease agreement on the basis of, or as a direct result of, the fact that the tenant or lessee is a protected person. So this means that if there is a person who uh, properly notifies the landlord as a uh, as set out in the state statute, that they are a victim of domestic violence or stalking or human trafficking, they're protected and uh, would not be responsible for any lease after they vacate the premises. The, the definition of protected person is also defined in the statute, um, and it's a person who, during the preceding 12 months, has been or is in imminent danger of becoming a victim of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, or stalking, and it defines those terms as well. Back in the ordinance, subsection 111.14 also makes the violation of state law a violation under this act. There are other sections of this chapter, chapter 10, the anti-discrimination chapter, that are not being changed, including the exemptions for when these protections do not apply. Those begin at the newly renumbered 10.111.15. So exemptions that would not fall under this ordinance, including the source of income or any of the other protections, include a religious organization, association, or society, a nonprofit private club, uh, renting to its members, and most provisions, other than those relating to publications and loans, do not apply to the rental or leasing of housing accommodations for not more than two families living independently of each other if the owner resides in one such housing unit, or to the rental or leasing to less than four persons within a single housing accommodation by the occupant or owner of such housing accommodation if the owner resides therein. So those are some carve-outs that are already in uh, this ordinance and would also apply to source of income. So to answer a couple questions the commission has posed, this does not mean that a landlord must choose a voucher recipient over a non-voucher recipient. 
it does mean that a landlord cannot deny a voucher recipient or discriminate against a voucher recipient based on that recipient's status. It also does not mean that they are not allowed to change the rent of the property. So under this um, ordinance, landlords would still be able to change the rent they're charging uh, just as they are now. And if it's in the voucher program, there are provisions uh, for how that would proceed. So that's kind of an overview of the ordinance. Now it's a mouthful. Um, but with that, I think we're going to open it up to questions about the ordinance or how it uh, would impact landlords. Yeah, and I can jump in there. So hi, everyone. My name is Hannah Ballard, and I'm the engagement manager for the city of Lawrence, and I'll be helping to facilitate question and answer session today. Uh, for Q&A, we're interested in hearing your questions, and we hope that one of our subject matter experts can provide an answer. If we don't have an answer today, we will do our best to provide an answer in the FAQ section of our website, uh, the URL for which is listed on the note cards that were on the seats when you came in. If there wasn't one on your seats, they're available at the podium. Um, so here's how the Q Q&A session will work. We'll start with questions from folks who are here with us in the room and who have signed up via the sign-up sheet. So if you know you have a question already, uh, go ahead and jump up and put your name on that list. Um, and from there, then we'll move over to Zoom. Uh, when it's your turn to ask a question, I will call your name. Uh, for those of you here in person, please approach the podium, and this is really important, use the microphone so that folks on Zoom can hear you and that everyone else in the room can hear you as well. Uh, for Zoom attendees, please raise your digital hand when you have a question, and Kalina will call on you during the Zoom portion of Q&A. In the interest of time, we ask that attendees keep all questions and comments to three minutes to allow others the time to speak and ask questions. If you go over three minutes, staff will signal that your time is up by playing this sound. Quite nice, right? <laughs> uh, if a question occurs to you at any point during this Q&A session and you'd like to be added to the sign-up sheet, please just raise your hand and I will bring the sign-up sheet to you or we'll pass it through the audience. We'll find a way to get that sheet to you so you can put your name down. Um, if you're on Zoom, again, just feel free to raise your digital hand at any point. If we run out of time and your question hasn't been answered, uh, please record it on the note card. If you flip it over from the side that has the information, you'll see that there's a space to write questions. Uh, you can submit that card to a staff member at the end of the meeting, and we'll make sure that it gets added into the commission packet and hopefully, again, try to address that question in the FAQ section of our website. And you can also send any questions or comments via email to the address that is also listed on the note card. Uh, we'll go ahead and drop the contact information that is on that card into the Zoom chat so that those of you who are with us digitally can also access it. Uh, that's it. Does that make sense? Any questions before we begin? Questions? You mentioned that we are not receiving questions via Zoom because oh. of the nature of the meeting and recording. Uh, we can't do that. So they will have to raise their hand and speak up. Okay, so uh, for those of you on Zoom, you cannot ask your question via chat. Please raise your hand, and when you are called on, unmute yourself uh, and turn on your video if you're comfortable doing that to ask your question. Okay, looks like we've got a few people signing up right now on the sheet, so once they're done, I will go over and grab it, and we'll get started. A uh, uh, question of clarification. Uh -huh. um, when the meeting was intro, it was, it was said that y'all wanted to get input, um, most of the discussion was about asking questions, but based on what you said. One second, because this is on Zoom, it's really important we talk in the microphone. Okay. Would you mind just stepping sure. up this mic and asking your question? Glad to. Thank you. Or actually, the podium is better. I am. <laughs> so my question is, are comments allowed as well? Thank you. Um, 
My name is Eric Kirkendall, uh, 714 uh, Mississippi Street. Um, own, I also own, my wife and I own and rent a house in East Lawrence. Um, I think the city is going about this the wrong way. Rather than make people, try and force people to do something they don't want to do, I think you ought to figure out exactly why landlords don't want to do it, find a way to incentivize them, or better yet, find a way to make more rental units available to more people in Lawrence. And I have a recommendation on how to do that. Um, so my first question, and I don't expect all the answers now, I have about five questions buried in here, is has the city, has, has the city figured out why landlords don't want to rent to people with Section 8 vouchers? I don't know. I don't know if you do or not. Um, I do things rationally based on risk, income, those sorts of things that I imagine everybody does. I, I think to make a fact-based decision on how to change things, you ought to understand what the problem is. Maybe you do. I, I'm just not aware of that or not. Um, when I read the ordinance, I thought about, about people who rent house, rooms in their houses. If, um, if you were a, a single woman uh, with a house with an extra bedroom or two bedrooms, would you want the city telling you that you have to rent to somebody you're not comfortable with? I wouldn't want that happening to somebody I know. Um, with the exception of people in protected classes, of course, we don't want racism or sexism, but other than that, shouldn't people be able to make the decisions that make them feel safe in their own home? As near as I can tell, this law would, would force somebody to do that. Um, it also, I think, would have unintended consequences. What if I just have one, one place to rent? My wife and I are keeping it because we want to move back in there someday, so we care a lot about it. Um, what if somebody came to me and said, uh, my parents, this person has no, no job, um, uh, no income, and they come to me and say, oh, my parents said they'll loan me the rent money. Would I be wise to rent to them? Do you want me, do you want to force me to rent to them? As, as I read the law, the ordinance, it would do that. Even if this approach worked, and I can think of a lot of reasons why it might not, it's going to force rents up. If you force people to rent to people they see as a higher risk, which I imagine that's one of the issues, um, they're just going to raise their rents to price out that risk. Everybody does that. I'd like to propose a better approach. Lawrence has, as all of you know, I'm sure, you know more than I do about it, has an ordinance that says that in most zoning districts, you can't rent a house to more than three unrelated people. I think that's classist, elitist, maybe sexist. What, what about two single moms? They each have two kids. They want to rent a four-bedroom house. Thank you, Eric. West Sorry, Lawrence, why not? Um, can you please, I, these are great comments. Can you please, if you um, have some more, submit them via the email address on the note card? I've completed my comments. Your timing oh. was perfect. Thank well you done. so much. <laughs> okay, uh, next up is, is it Lewis Schneider? Lois Schneider? Okay. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm oh. trying to answer some oh. of his questions and try and inform you a little bit. I am a landlord. I own 17 houses. That uh, makes up 43 rental units. Sorry. I'm a landlord. I own 17 houses. It makes up 43 rental units here in Lawrence. Jim, my husband, and I started purchasing houses in 1974. The last house we purchased was in 1999. We stopped because we liked knowing our tenants and we wanted to stay small. For a total of, we have a total of 17 houses. Each house was the worst house on the block. We did urban renewal. Um, and we did it on credit cards and with my husband's sweat. Uh, each house, uh, Jim did most of the work himself. He acted as a handyman, gardenered everything for us. Since my husband's passing, my daughter has stepped in to help, and we hired a part-time office manager. We also had to hire a handyman and other subcontractors, a lot of them. On average, I spent in the last, in 2022, $6,617 on employees. Now, I think that's in the last month, actually. But at any rate, $5,318 on, that is last month, subcontractors, $400 on workman's comp, $2,976 on insurance, and $13,562.80 on mortgages. That's one month. Uh, the last tax bill I got from the city was for $62,055, up $7,340.48. My tax bill went up. Every other landlord's who owns property, their tax bills went up. You want to impact something, you should impact the assessments that you charge. They are really too high. And it's part of the reason rental housing has become so expensive. One of the reasons, many original, one of the reasons is city requirements. 35 years ago, we started. And in 35 years, and I'm not saying I disagree with a lot of this, but in 35 years, the city originally wanted only three people living in a house. That happened, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And I thought it was discriminatory at the time, and I never rent to more than three people, but the city does, or made the law, and we were lucky it wasn't two people. Um, then the city wanted to check health and safety and to make sure there weren't more than three people unrelated living in a rental unit. So they were counting toothbrushes and going through the houses. Then the city began to have rental houses, which cost me approximately $15 a unit. That was for licensing, when they went to licensing and inspections. Every time the city inspects, it's an additional $50 per unit that they inspect. If I spread that across all, all 43 units, which is how we look at expenses, is $25.50 a year just for the city inspections and licenses on the years we inspect. This year, I my license fees were $1,095. I'm getting inspected. We have to have one smoke alarm in every room now. We used to only have one on every level. I agree with that. I actually think that was fine. But I also need to have an additional carbon monoxide detector in front of every bedroom. 
Thank you, Lois. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's your time. No, I have to get to his answer, and I'm sorry I'm going to. Uh, Lois, please, uh, if you have more comments, you can email them to the address on the card. I'd emailing like to give doesn't tell you why things respond. are so expensive. You want to make things less expensive. You have to attack it from what they cost. You also have to think about guaranteeing the subsidized people. If they trash my house, I have nowhere to go collect. I can take them to court, but I lose several months of rent doing it. I know there's a housing problem. Let the city agree to building tiny houses. Let them subsidize them and build them good to code. Lois, we need to give the panelists a chance to respond. Thank you. I apologize to Eric too earlier. I should have paused and let, allowed the panelists to respond. That's my bad. Um, so I will open it up to respond to both any questions or comments from Lois and any questions or comments from Eric from the panel. Yeah. Well, uh, Eric, I can respond to a couple of your questions and then I'm going to defer to the panel for a couple more. So uh, one of your questions was um, an example of renting a a room in a house, and you you wanted to be able to you know have some control over who rents that room. And I think there there are two answers to that under the ordinance. Uh, the first is that there landlords can still set whatever screening criteria that they want in order to uh, determine who they allow uh, to be in the rental unit, as long as it's not discriminatory, as long as it isn't one of the protected classes that's already in the ordinance or the newly added source of income. So there can be other determinations about who lives in that house. And the second, and particularly to your example of, say, a single woman living alone, there is a cutout in the ordinance that states that uh, a rental of less than four persons within a single housing accommodation by the occupant or owner. So this would not apply to that case where the occupant or owner is, is living in that house. So, so good question, but I think those are addressed by the ordinance. Um, for, for some of these other questions about the policy, I think I'm going to defer to, to people in the field if, if you'd like to jump in on any of those answers. Marcy, to take a vote? Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm Shannon Alry. I'm with the Housing Authority. Um, basically, um, we need to make clear that that a voucher is not to equivalent to a particular tenant. So this would not make any landlord accept a particular tenant. It would it would prohibit saying I won't accept any voucher from any person. And so we are not. The, this doesn't have anything to do with a particular tenant that. You know, you listed off some various criteria that you might not want to rent to, you would still be able to do that. Okay, uh, next person on the list is I, Eric. I do want to answer your question about the um, fees. So, with our inspection process, the city fees for rental licensing are waived. So that would not be something you would require to have to pay for that unit, just to, to clarify that. And you were you, that was just a part of your question, so I'd answer. I think next up is Aaron Bloom. Approach the podium. Greetings, my name's Eric Bloom, a local landlord. Um, like Lois, I, I gave my $80,000 in property taxes this year, and, uh, and it goes up every time except 
in the last few years, I've also been able to bear a brunt of a lot of losses, including someone that worked in Shannon's department who uh, gave advice to people who uh, rented from me, who basically said, stay there, you won't have to pay. And they got 35 days of free rent. I had to tell people who were set up to go rent my next apartment to go buzz off because these people can't be made to leave. The city isn't going to help me. And to this day, our courts hasn't helped me. That's the real experience that I've experienced losing $60,000 last year, the year before, and nearly the year before that. Um, I'd like to go with Eric mentioned about the, I complete this ordinance to being something along the lines of the three unrelated people that came almost 30 years ago. And it's what comes down to the people who follow rules will follow the rules. And if that's what you enact, I will follow it. I already don't discriminate. I think that's the problem. The people who follow the rules are not discriminating to people. It's already happening. The people who would discriminate will continue to do so with any other pretense to get out of what they have to do. So just like the three unrelated, I have never rented to more than three people in one of my apartments. And we have Indiana, and we have Kentucky, and we have 100-year-old homes who have seven apartments who are rented to 14 fraternity kids. Those kids are not in a zoned appropriate fraternity building. These are the seniors who moved out, and they're in apartments that landlords are making 14 rental checks where I get to make essentially to three people. Those people have skirted the rules by following the outsides of where their places are grandfathered in. The places have been rezoned. The city has helped them to get more people in those places without ever improving the streets, the amount of parking, all the things that make it miserable to try to find. When I go to mow my one place that I owe down there, I can't find a parking spot now because every spot that is possibly parked with a car is littered with cars because there's too many people living in a place that was made for a single family home 100 years ago. That's what I feel is the real problem. Don't penalize the people who are already following the rules and do not discriminate. You need to go after the people who have always been the problem, who do rent to more than three unrelated people. And to this day, with any amount of work, you could find out how many of those landlords have done that. And many of them own 70 and 80 rentals, almost always down by the one-way streets. Go after those people because they sicken me how much they make on rent, and they charge more per person than I do. And I'm the one that has to go to court myself because I don't have enough volume that I send a lawyer when I don't get paid. And people don't leave my property for 35 days. I simply had to tell a good family they couldn't live in my property because these squatters are not leaving and I don't want to get countersued because I'm constantly worried that I will get countersued if I ever do anything and these people will show up and say discriminated against me you didn't want to rent to me I don't know what I have to do I'm just going to turn over to the city they'll find a way to screw you over I need to be protected I follow the rules and I don't need someone who can simply throw their hands in the air and say discrimination and that's where I have a big problem that I don't feel like I will be protected in that situation. And that's why I don't like more legislation that I would already follow, but the bad landlords do not do in the city. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Eric. Would anyone on the panel like to respond? Um, the only thing I will say is that both landlord and tenants both have rights under the Landlord Tenant Act. And so if someone was told not to leave, it was because they have also have rights and you, and there is no self-help option under the Landlord Tenant Act. So you have to go to the, through the court to evict people. And the housing authority, we're, we we partner with the landlords and we partner with the tenants and we respect both sides. I mean, we are also landlords to over 450 units. We understand the concerns of being a landlord, but the tenants also have rights in these situations.
Next up is oh, Sandra. Uh, oh, no, if I could just add, um, so some clarity about how any violation of this ordinance would be enforced. This goes through a complaint process with the Human Relations Commission. And so there is a, a series of meetings and conciliation meetings to try to resolve the situation. Um, before it ever goes to a court. So a court wouldn't be the first recourse for a violation of this. It goes through a city process as any other violation of Chapter 10 would, just for information. Hi. Um, my name is Dr. Cassandra Barrett. I have a quick question for the panel. I'm curious if, if this ordinance were passed, if landlords would still be able to ask about someone's source of income before the lease is signed. So would they still be able to know, you know, where is this money coming from before the lease is finalized? So to answer your question, there's no restriction on asking questions. There's, you know, if, if, if you're asking questions uh, uniformly of all applicants, that's, that's acceptable. If there is discrimination based on that source of income, that's where the violation comes in. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, it seems to me like that's a really small change then, you know, folks uh, are probably not just going to be getting a single applicant for each rental. So I, I assume that, you know, that there is still subtly the possibility for discrimination and it might be even really hard for folks with vouchers to prove that um i also just want to drop a quick like compassionate note into this chat i'm a medical geneticist in my professional life and my gosh so many of my patients use vouchers um so you know some of these folks are not tasmanian devils they are these are you know families that have disabled kiddos these are people who got a diagnosis of als and can't even get out of their wheelchair so um, i'm grateful that this voucher program exists thank you Okay, uh, if there are no more comments from the panelists, then the next question is from Rick Johnson. If you'll please approach the podium and use the microphone. Thank you. Hi, I'm not Rick, I'm Gail. <laughs> um, Rick is my husband and we own um, five rental properties in Lawrence, um, have had them since 2013. And they have served us well. Um, we've kept them up. We've um, paid the taxes, the increase in taxes. Um, I always run a credit check on everybody and it has served me well. Um, have followed that rule. Um, I don't think that's discrimination. I think, I think that's protecting my properties. And um, what I'm wondering is whether or not that uh, is ever going to, if not through this ordinance, come about um, in the projected ordinances where you can't run a credit check or um, turn someone away because of a bad credit check. Um, that is more important to me than any discrimination because I don't feel like I discriminate um, with my properties right now. So that's not a concern for me, but my ability to um, choose my renters is is very important to me um i wouldn't loan somebody that i didn't know twenty thousand dollars without any kind of um application for to see you know where their income was coming from or if they have good rental history and rental history can tell you so much um i do have uh, my renters fill out a rental um history and um, I follow up with that, and I talk to them, you know, before I rent to them. Um, it can tell you a lot. Um, people that 
people that have good credit, people that have good rental uh, history have, have served me well since 2013. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to have to adjust anything in my business um, because of a city ordinance. And so I guess my question is, is a credit check going to be um, something that I can continue to do in the future? Is that going to come up next? Thank you. Uh, Gail, I'll, I'll say that this, that isn't a part of this ordinance. Uh, you know, uh, credit checks are still permissible. That isn't uh, something that has been discussed as part of this ordinance. I can't predict the future about what the commission will do, but that has not been uh, part of these discussions. It is not prohibited by this ordinance. What about the other thing, rental references? If you get a bad reference, that's oh, okay, just Zach, a follow-up. Uh, and you're right. There was a, that was a portion of the question I didn't answer. That there is no prohibition on looking at rental references as under this ordinance either. Okay. Uh, next up is Steve Larue. I uh, don't want to question your intent on this. I think I'm sure that you have good intentions here. I just think that they might come with some consequences that need to be thought through. Um, first off, uh, one of the things in this um, uh, ordinance uh, references loans uh, for, for real estate, and I believe that would come into some federal guidelines for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and I'm not sure that our local city really has a whole lot of authority over uh, what their loan guidelines are. I'd be interested to hear um, more about that. Uh, also, uh, if somebody came to me and they had three months worth of vouchers where we knew, hey, I've got money to pay for the next three months worth of rent, but I'm only interested in signing up year-long leases. I'm taking a gamble as to whether or not they're going to have those vouchers for the rest of the term. So I'd be interested to hear information about that because I don't know. Um, and um, I, I'm also kind of curious if we're looking to create more affordable housing or if we're trying to create more uh, uh, subsidized housing. Because what we're doing is we are creating more subsidized housing, but I think that the end result is going to be less affordable housing. Because if I have a, a tenant who uh, I've done some really thorough background checks on and I've, I've made sure that they have uh, all their ducks in a row, they've never missed a payment on anything, they've got good credit, they have no criminal background, uh, they've got a job that's been uh, pr pr giving them income for the last 15 years, I know I can count on them to, to take care of my property, I can count on them to pay the loan, I can count on them to do what they say they're going to do. Well, if I now have to put myself in a risk category to where I'm not necessarily going to only be able to rent to, to people who have the, the high credit, the good jobs, I have to also make myself and my properties available for those who uh, are on some Section 8 vouchers and, and who I have to now not just deal with me and my tenant, but I have to deal with the federal organization that also is a middleman between the two. There's more red tape, there's more expense, there's more hassle, as opposed to me just being able to work with the tenant directly uh, to work through things. So. If I have to build in that risk and I have to build in that uh, work, I also am going to have to build in higher rents to make it worth the, the risk reward to, to, to pan out. So I want to make sure that we're thinking about that and know that it's not going to be just those who are on vouchers who are effective. It's going to affect all renters in Lawrence. The problem with affordable housing is, is, is the lack of housing. We have such a short supply, and I love that we're trying to find affordable housing, but the things that we do to try to make housing affordable, a lot of times just makes it less affordable across the board. Until we get some more supply, we're not gonna be able to, to really fix the problem. I think I had one more point. 
Oh, also, uh, you, you, you mentioned that uh, credit was not a part of this. I, the, kind of the scuttle that's been going around town is that credit and criminal background both will be things that at some point will not be allowed to be uh, uh, used uh, in screening a tenant. Um, I would say those are both very bad ideas. Um, what somebody's done in the past is a good predictor of what they're going to be in, doing in the future. I'm not going to say that people don't get second chances, but it's also not uh, private landlords' uh, responsibilities to be the ones to give those people second chances. So... That's all I have, and I'd love to hear some comments and, and answers. Thanks. Do you want to go first? Here, I'll, I'll, one uh, legal answer, and then. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Right. <laughs> Steve, uh, to answer your first question, I think that's one I, I might uh, be able to help. The, so interplay with federal loans, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act already prohibits uh, discrimination because an applicant receives income from a public assistance program. Um, so, you know, there might be some interplay with other loan provisions that we could, you know, talk about. But as, as far as some of those uh, federal loans, that is a provision that's already in federal law. For um, other answers, I'll defer. Hi. Um, I'll go ahead and take uh, all the credit for the confusion. Certainly, the Human Relations Commission and working with um, experts across the country and other city attorneys and other community leaders on what would be most effective um, that would go along in conjunction with the source of income ordinance suggested that other things be done in tandem with a source of income ordinance change or adding source of income as a protected class. So while that's not being considered with this, uh, the Human Relations Commission did bring it up. It is not something that the city has chosen to uh, include here. Um, I, again, like Zach said, can't predict the future, um, but other communities have said the most effective way to get people housed is to do other things in tandem. That's why that was recommended. Again, that's not being done or proposed here. Uh, the second thing is, I just, I don't know how many times we can say this and it's not through irritation. This is very complex um, language, but there is no forcing, requiring, or have to take vouchers with this source of income language. I hope that that's clear. I don't, I just, again, I don't know how many times that has to be said, or, or maybe we just need to say it a different way. Like certainly this isn't, I feel honored to be up here with these other subject matter experts. Um, this is not my area of expertise. And so um, I'm just on the Human Relations Commission. We studied it for a couple years, but no one is forcing landlords to take vouchers. This ordinance says do not discriminate. Um, and that's, that's all I wanted to say. And I am happy to answer your questions on the voucher process. So um, I, I'd like to say subsidy rather than vouchers. So a subsidy is received on a monthly basis. So there's not an amount of vouchers that folks receive. They're determined an amount of subsidy based on several factors, including income, household size, um, ages of, of the member or family members in the household size. And then they're given a subsidy amount that they are able to receive, the landlord is able to receive on a monthly basis. We ask uh, for the initial lease to be 12 months. Um, and then after that, 
if you like to do a month to month, a three month, whatever length is comfortable between the landlord and tenant, um, that is what you're able to agree to do. We allow that. Um, so we do encourage longevity of leases. We do encourage that stability of continuing um, housing and renting from landlords. And we do have several uh, majority of our tenants would say are long term renters. Um, now for the, the processes and maybe like expanding your expenses is kind of what you're referring to. We are purely the administrators of vouchers. So there is no other pieces that we require other than you to uphold your lease between the landlord and tenant, which is your lease. We do not dictate a lease. The um, information that you will sign with us is a housing assistance payment contract. That is a contract between all three parties. And that is essentially saying we are administering this amount of subsidy that you will get on a monthly basis. And here's the parameters of that, which is essentially saying uphold, maintain your lease, uh, both parties, and you will receive your subsidy on the first of the month every month. I will say that is the biggest benefit of this voucher program. And as the landlord liaison is what I try to um, express to landlords as much as possible, it is a guaranteed monthly subsidy. During the pandemic, it was a guaranteed monthly subsidy. So while we had folks that were unable to pay rent, those uh, subsidy payments were coming in in the form of check and direct deposit to landlords um, on a monthly basis. So that is is something that we can guarantee as, as a housing authority, but we do not determine things beyond that as far as uh, the lease agreement that's between the landlord and tenant. And we wanna make sure that that relationship is upheld. If there are no more comments from the panelists, I have two more uh, names on my list, and then we'll jump over to Zoom. Just as a reminder to anyone in the room, if you do want to ask a question, feel free to raise your hand at any time, and I will come to you with the sign-up sheet. Uh, next on my list is Michelle. Hi. Yes. Um, uh, I was wondering, though, um, there's a lot of considerations that you have to put forth when you're doing realty. Um, obviously, maintaining a, a good house for your tenants. Uh, so maintenance costs can go into that. Um, but I was wondering, um, with issuing the vouchers, they're guaranteeing rent. Um, but are they going to guarantee damages? If uh, we're, you know, with deposits, you only have so much amount of a deposit, but um, damages can cost a lot more than those deposits. Uh, you have a tenant who leaves their washer on while they're at work, so their loads of laundry are done, but they've overstuffed them. If they're on the second floor, uh, they could cause up to $3,000 worth of damage in water. Um, you have a cat that a tenant doesn't properly clean up after, and it could stain wood floors to the point where you have to take out those those panelings because the floor is so drenched with urine, you have no other choice. That could be up to like $5,000. I'm citing exact instances of which we've dealt with. I think, uh, it, so would the city or uh, the housing um, be uh, guaranteeing any damages over the deposit rate? Because uh, I think that's where a lot of people are concerned is it's not that we don't want to be fair, uh, but we also are real people. We also have to worry about our mortgages, our keeping up any money that we get, we put back into the business to make these homes good for our tenants, to keep these things going, to keep up with 
with uh, city ordinances as well. So I think that's, uh, that's a concern. Would damages be covered? Because we have nowhere to go to uh, with someone who can't afford to, you know, pay for those damages. Is there someone being guaranteeing for that? Okay. <laughs> um, so I will say we treat these tenants the same as every tenant. So I, I would love for every landlord to take the stigmatization away that somebody receiving a subsidy is somehow different than any other tenant. They're exactly the same. So that risk factor that you take on with any tenant is the exact same. What we do offer, because we do realize that damage is a, a factor, unpaid rent is a factor. Uh, we have worked very hard in the last two years to get funding to not only incentivize landlords, but I've also created programming around damage mitigation. Um, we have, uh, over the last two years, been awarded several hundred, about a hundred thousand um, in total to work on programs to incentivize to get landlords on our program. And there's also a pot um, for damage mitigation. Now, I will say we're not going to probably be able to cover like huge amounts of damage. That risk, again, risk mitigation. Screen your tenants, follow your lease, do everything you would normally do as a landlord because that is within your rights. Uh, again, these tenants are no different. These tenants are not more of a risk factor, less of a risk factor. And that needs to be very clear that you take on that risk with anybody that you allow to rent in your home. But we do have some funding to help kind of calm a little bit of that anxiety. And I work with all of our landlords and I say, if you see an issue, I want you to call me. Let's talk about it. For those folks who maybe need a little bit more support that you are taking on as a tenant, we have social service agencies. We have wrap around case management support that I work with directly to make sure that that fit makes sense. So please know that risk is always going to be there as a landlord, but we will do what was in our power to, to make sure that relationship makes sense. And sorry, I didn't mean to infer that those type of accidents would be more prone to anybody who might need subsidy help. Those sites were just, you know, anybody in which accidents can happen. But unfortunately, those that um, can show their financial backing or, for instance, if a, a tenant doesn't financially qualify, they have a co-signer or guarantor. Um, so would the housing be acting as their guarantor? tour somehow guaranteeing that if there was damage above the deposit that it would be covered? We do not act as a guarantor. So again, screen your tenants. If you are... It wouldn't be that, covered. The no, risk would all no, be ours. Absolutely. No, that would be the same as with any tenant. So if you require a guarantor for your rental properties, continue to do so. Okay. You know, that's not a provision in this ordinance. Yeah, no, but you can't rent. I mean, and if you have financial requirements that don't meet someone's financial requirements and then your other option is a guarantor. So are you saying if that's how we have it set up, we can stick to our financial requirements despite this? At this time, it is saying you cannot discriminate based on the source of income not other screening requirements. So if that is part of your requirement, and please, Katie and Zach, if I'm incorrect, please correct me. But if that is part of 
have your process, do you have a guarantor, mm -hmm. then you have that as part of your process. We can still keep that. That would be the same, despite this. Correct. It, as long as you're treating everyone the same, that's fine. Okay. Yes. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Cassandra. Okay. Uh, one uh, more sorry. Just want to... Oh, um, Katie. Sorry. Just... I know when a uh, new policy and ordinance change comes up, it's real scary, especially if we're the first city in the state to do it. Um, you feel like there's a lot of anticipation. And I just want to say that the city of Lawrence is not the first city in the country to do this. There are entire states with entire states full of cities and people and millions and millions of people across the country who live in states that have source of income, uh, non-discrimination language. So when you talk about damage, that's a what pretty well-studied issue. Um, the in, in the entire states of Oregon and Washington, they created a fund and it was actually only drawn on a couple times, a couple times for the entire state. So while it, while it, in the anticipa anticipation can be really scary, I think what we're finding and data shows, science shows that that's actually doesn't become as big of a problem as uh, you, would, you would think, so. Okay, uh, next up is William Harmon, and then we'll go to Zoom, and then we'll come back to the room. Hello, I'm William Harmon. I've been Lawrence, lived in Lawrence all my life. I've rented these houses for 50 years. I've never been to court case. I've never been to any court cases, anything like that. I screened my renters. And then the last little house I rent, I had 35 people wanting to rent it the first day, first hour. And they told me there wasn't anything to rent in Lawrence for under $1,200. What are we going to do? We're going to take somebody with a voucher and let them have the, have the rent that people that's wanting to, good, hardworking people work, can't get rent. But you're going to give these people with vouchers, fine. Now, if they have a voucher, are you going to take care of uh, the stuff that they tear up? Are you going to give me a, let me have a, a, a deal to so much money so that, like, like uh, if I get rent, $1,200 rent, I get $1,200 deposit. I've never had any problems with it worked out. We take pictures of my units go in, we take pic and, and the people take pictures that live there. They all take pictures, we've had no problems. That's, you know, 50 years is a pretty good show. Thank you. I'd like to respond to this. Um, <clears throat> so the housing, so let me give you just the magnitude of what we're talking about. The housing authority has a total of about a thousand vouchers. So the total thing that we're talking about is a thousand vouchers. Um, of that two thirds of the, our participants are elderly or disabled. And so when you're talking about these people that they're no good, like that guy just said. You're talking about elderly and disabled people primarily. And so I'd really like people to really think about what they're saying here when they're talking about not hardworking people. Um, and the other thing that you should be aware of is the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority is part of a demonstration program with HUD. And all of our non-elderly, non-disabled people are required to work or be going to school. And so um, I just want to dispel sort of the understanding that they're those people, because they're not, they're our people, they're part of our community. And the fact that somebody is disabled or elderly, 
Um, and on a fixed income does not mean they should be uh, unhoused. Um, think about it as if you said, I won't take anybody who has social security or social security disability income. It's the same idea here. It's no different. Any other comments from the panelists? No? Okay, we'll head over to Zoom. If you'd like to ask a question on Zoom, please raise your digital hand and Kalina will call on you. Uh, when it's your turn to ask a question, we ask that you obviously unmute, unmute your microphone. If you're able to turn on your camera, please do that as well. Okay, okay, over to you, Kalina. Okay, so I'm going to start with, looks like Peter on Zoom. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, thanks for hosting this. I'm a local landlord here in town. I'm just going to give you a little bit of history before I ask my question. Um, I'm originally from Egypt, so I know what poverty is all about. And I came here to America. I went to school in Atchison and in Lawrence, and I stayed married and have children here. I'm a small landlord. I bought some properties with my dad. And um, uh, about four or five years ago, I took a risk with... Uh, um, what do you call it, uh, Catholic Charities, and they asked me to take in a tenant, and they were going to pay the first two months. Uh, obviously, after the first two months, um, they destroyed the place. We actually had an eviction, and when even the cop, the sheriff came to remove him, there was drug paraphernalia there. So my experience with that programs of helping, I, I like I said, uh, I come from very poor background, work the way through it. But my thought is I came where people, where the government tells you what to do, how to do it, when to do it. Um, and I don't think that's America. I don't discriminate against anybody. Um, I judge by the application and what's on the application and I do my credit check and everything. My question, and I think it's to Zach, um, if the whole entire state of Kansas is not doing this except Lawrence, why are we even touching something that it ain't broken? If you are putting this law, there has to be a problem that you're seeing in order to fix it. I just can't see, and I, I understand Oregon, and these are different states. They're not Midwest. They're not local. Um, why are we trying to implement something that's happening out on the West Coast to the Midwest? Um, who brought in this issue that this is needs to be addressed? I, I, I just don't see a problem. My second question, I believe, Shannon. Um, Shannon, how many, um, and, and I don't know, it says Section 8, how many folks were on the program landlords and got and decided to get out of the program? And what was the reason for that? Um, just to help us understand if, if a landlord like me gets with you on the program, and then I see a tenant, I don't allow smoking in my properties. If I come to you and I say, Shannon, hey, this person is smoking. You told me take a risk on them. I'm partnering with you. You said the word contract a couple of times previously, which means it holds me liable, you liable, and a third party. You mentioned all three of us. Uh, what are you going to do to help me? Um, I, and I know this can happen with every landlord, with every other tenant, but... I do have a cosigner. Now I don't have a cosigner. I have you or that other person. And usually, if I have a cosigner, it's somebody who's strong financially that can 
pay for smoke damage in a property? Um, those are all my questions. Thank you. All right, Peter, this is Zach. So for the question to me, how did this come to be uh, in front of the city commission? I'll, I'll tell you, this came from the Human Relations Commission and the city commission decided to uh, take up this issue of source of income and they asked us to draft this ordinance. Now, where it came from, from the Human Relations Commission, I'd refer to Kate. Thank you so much, Peter, um, for your question. So uh, I don't think that it's any surprise that we need housing here in Lawrence. So that's the first issue. Um, when the city commission and other groups studied the issue of housing, uh, one of the solutions that was proposed that other communities have done, uh, not just in the West, on the West Coast, but in the central states, we have, you know, Texas and Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we really looked to in the Midwest, what our Midwestern city is doing. Um, renters comprise over 50% of households in Lawrence, and in a survey of available rental properties, available rental properties. In May of 2021, when we were doing this research, 80% of units did not accept vouchers, just flat out did not accept vouchers. Um, and there are 400, well, I think there's a longer, a, bi a bigger number now on the wait list for vouchers for Lawrence. As you heard, there's a finite number of vouchers here in our community. Um, and there was a wait time of about 18 to 24 months um, of voucher holders. So those are people who actually have vouchers in hand and there are available rental properties. And there is a, a disconnect there of rental properties not accepting this money that's available to them. Um, this was uh, uh, an approach that again is not new. It's new to Kansas, but it's not new to the entire country. So that's one of the issues the Human Relations Commission studied. So that's where it came from. Thank you. You can. Okay, uh, I think we'll move on to the next Zoom question. Kalina? I had a question for Shannon. Oh, yeah. People went off the program. Peter, I can answer that. This is Marielle. Um, so, no, no, that's totally fine. No problem. Um, so we we did see, uh, and this is a kind of a cyclical thing where we see uh, landlords come off the program, go back on the program. Uh, what I have seen in the past year and a half um, have been uh, a lot of change in property management and ownership of different properties. And when that transition happens, those new owners have tended to say, nope, we're not taking vouchers. Uh, that's been the biggest uh, amount of loss that I've seen. I have personally um, asked and said, hey, uh, just inquiring as to why, uh, Just we just want to know, you know, are you going to keep the, the current tenants you have in place? Are, are you going to continue to take subsidy from them and just not accept new vouchers? Or are you just getting you know, rid of any voucher holder? That's been a mix of yes and no. Uh, I have not gotten a solid answer from a single landlord that I have asked other than we just do not want to. 
And that has been a very unfortunate answer. Um, and then your, your question about the damaged property. Again, I do want to say with the, the source of income added as a protected class, that does not prevent you from having a grantor or uh, a, another backing, having a, a co-signer. That does not prevent that. So if that's something that you require for your properties, continue to require that. Would that mean a voucher recipient would necessarily be able to uh, be in your unit? That may not be the case. It may be the case, but that is not something that we are preventing with this. Um, so you have, have that solace in knowing you still do that um, procedure as a landlord, if that's part of your process. Um, again, with, with damages, like if you have someone who's smoking in your unit, for example, I encourage you and I encourage all landlords, enforce your lease, enforce your lease. We are voucher administrators. We administer the program. The contract you are signing that you mentioned is the agreement to receive the subsidy. That is what you're signing on to and to enforce your lease. That is yours. So please, I always encourage, I say, if there's an issue, you do have me to call on and, and maybe we can get through and have that extra bit of like um, holistic conversation, maybe a little mediation. But if it gets to the point where the, it's not being resolved, issue your lease violation, utilize the landlord tenant law that is in existence because you have every right to, as does that tenant have the right to that law as well. Um, so just to be clarified, does that answer all your questions, Peter? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, I'm going to call on Brandy Sutton. Good afternoon. I think we're missing a couple of points, one of which is this is not just saying you have to accept Section 8 vouchers. You also have to accept any emergency assistance. So this would have potentially required you to accept CARA, which we knew was a limited source of income and did not know how long it was going to last for. So this ordinance doesn't say if I am a landlord who offers a one-year lease, but I know Kira may or may not go for that one year, what is considered qualified? Is it qualified for that month immediately or is it qualified for the entire lease term? Um, I also know we keep saying that, oh, you can still do your criminal background checks. Oh, you can still do your credit reporting. I spent quite a bit of time watching these HRC meetings and I am willing to bet money by the end of this next year of 2023, they will be back with an ordinance to restrict what you can and cannot ask. In fact, there was a sample application that was proposed. Those issues are not going to go away. And I know that we're hearing from housing authority that, oh, we just have the HAP contract. Well, the HAP contract incorporates the HUD regulations. So when you go to renew the tenant, your rent has to be approved. Yeah. by the housing authority. So let's say taxes go up, which they do every year in Lawrence, but the housing authority says, well, we believe the appropriate increases X while it would take Y to cover your property taxes. You are going to have to renew the contract based on what the housing authority says. Also, by taking a HAP contract, you're agreeing that <laughs> you have to renew somebody's lease, but for good cause. We all know there's situations where we decide not to renew a lease. Under Kansas law, we're not required to disclose those, but under the housing contract, we would have to. I know we keep saying, well, you can accept any applicant. Well, under federal law, you have to take the first qualified applicant. Um, in addition, you know, I'm hearing housing authorities saying, well, you'll receive guaranteed payment. 
you will receive guaranteed payment for HUD's portion. What happens when the tenant's qualifications change? Those subsidies can be adjusted at any time by the housing authority if the tenant's circumstances change. I'm very interested to learn how 10, 1, 11, 13 that says you're not restricting the amount of rent due to the state statute interplays when we come into that renewal time and all of a sudden our rent is capped. Again, we come to the issue of, well, just enforce your lease contract. I know every landlord sitting there knows what enforce your lease contract means. It means spending money on attorney's fees, not receiving rent during the notice violation period during the time you're going to court. Um, you know, you've heard several people already say the cost of being a landlord keeps going up, up, and up. This is only going to increase that. I'd also like to point out that the information provided by the HRC in their packet has no references to any landlord experts that were consulted. Randy, your time has um, your time has come to its limit. Anything? Right, that, thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, next, oh, is there any response from the panelists? Yeah. I, oh, I, no, that's okay, Kalina. I just I want to respond to the uh, the annual increases in rent. So you are absolutely able um, under your renewal time, which is that uh, period by state law, you have an, a certain amount of renewal time. We go through recertification where we do the annual inspection. There's an opportunity to request an increase in rent. We ask for uh, some comparables uh, to show the reasonable rent increase. And then our inspectors also look at comparables. And if the rent is reasonably increased, we say, yes, of course, we will adjust the subsidy. Either that tenant will receive more subsidy or they'll have a portion to pay. If we, for some reason, say, hey, that is not reasonable rent, you are well within your right to do a mutual termination of lease or a non-renewal. There is no requirement for you to continue on the contract. So that is incorrect. I uh, just want to say that uh, speaking to our director of property and program management, who kind of resides and looks over the inspection process, he said in his time, he has not seen um, rent increases and requests not met unless they were outrageous. So that it's not a common uh, occurrence to not have a rent increase be granted through the program. I always tell our landlords, it needs to make financial sense to you. If you have a luxury apartment and you are renting it for you know quite a bit of money, then you're not going to have a voucher recipient in that luxury apartment. And this is not an ordinance that is going to affect you because we do not let our tenants, our subsidy recipients say, hey, go look and apply for everything. We say, this is the subsidy amount you are um, able to have. This is what you qualify for. Please find a unit that fits your family size and that fits this rental amount. And so we let them know that this is what you need to look for. So and then I promise you, and if they are, we'll say, hey, that's not reasonable for you. You cannot rent that. That's not going to meet your, your subsidy amount. Um, so just to answer that question, uh, we're not capping anything or telling you you have to continue renting at a certain amount. If it's just not working and your rent needs to be higher, there's an option under that renewal period for you to not renewal. We prefer mutual termination so that tenant can move on and find other housing. 
I don't know if there was more questions or if anyone else wants Well, sorry. Um, one more, one more thing. Um, yeah, just with regard to the research that was done, um, I am so glad that we're having this forum today because I know landlords to attend um, and learn more about vouchers. And there were a few discussions at the library, Rock Chalk Park, and of course, all of our Human Relations Commission meetings. I know those are snoozers sometimes, but um, I'm glad we have this opportunity today um, because we haven't had a time to kind of go back and forth and ask, ask the questions that the landlords. Lawrence, to my knowledge, doesn't have like a landlord association that you all membership that you all belong to and um i and or and are organized under that i'm aware of and so i think that was problematic outreach um so again i am glad that we have this today with regard to the research packet um i'll just say i am uh the data that was gathered was gathered uh, it's just raw information and data it's not um from any kind of uh tenant perspective only it's just simply data and analysis of data and so that would include landlord experiences landlords would be reporting their damage and and everything you can't gather the data that was in the research without asking landlords for their information so i know that landlords participated in it um so i i just want to say I, I thought the data was scientific peer-reviewed most of it was um and it, it's just data um it's not uh weighing heavily on one side or the other so that's it well respectively i think that's why we're all here today Katie, I'm just, I'm sorry. Katie, I, you said that there was no landlord association to go to. However, between the last city commission meeting and this city and the next city commission meeting, you were able to notify all the landlords in the city of Lawrence of an opportunity for comment. So I guess my question back to you is why the HRC didn't do this in the last two years. Sure. Um, well, we didn't do it with, with tenants or the, we did it just to the general public. Um, it wasn't targeted to anyone. Um, we had several people from the general public show up to the city commission meeting. Um, we talked about this and it wasn't targeted outreach to anybody. Um, so I, I think there was a, a field for everyone. Um, there wasn't a lot of tenant or landlord engagement. And so this is actually a specific outreach to landlords. Um, I, I don't, I'm, there was, I don't really know what else to say other than we're, we're outreaching to you today, specifically through mailers. Um, there were several opportunities for tenants to come, uh, general public to come to the Human Relations Commission meetings, um, also to show up to the city commission meeting. That's what this is for, right? I mean, that's what, this is a public meeting. That, that's what we're engaged in right now. If, if we were to have a, a meeting, we wouldn't, didn't have anything to present. So that's what we're doing here today. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what, what else? I, I'm, I'm happy to take the criticism for that. I have been the chair of the Human Relations Commission for uh, a, almost a year now, I think. So, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll take it. 
Um, sorry, we didn't reach out until now. I'm going to have to call time on that one. Um, thank you, Brandy. Uh, up next, um, I'm going to have Ken. I, I want to bring a little different um, perspective to this. I'm a, a new landlord to Lawrence. Um, purchased 162 units in the last, um, call it six or eight months. And uh, I specifically targeted places like Lawrence because of um, kind of the, the overall investment opportunity that existed. And I guess what I want to leave a mark on everybody on the board there today is that um, as you enact more more laws. And as you pass along more responsibility to the landlords, you in turn are somewhat harming the area for future investment. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the studies on, on how things like this work in places like uh, Oregon and Washington. Well, I, I owned over 300 units in both Oregon and Washington. And let me tell you, it's not working, especially in Portland, especially in Seattle, because those cities through ordinances like this, and this is just the start. And I think there's a little bit of disingenuous answers in regards to what's next and that you can't foresee the future. I don't think that, that you're being wholly truthful with us in that, you know, I've seen this play out again, over and over again in cities, and, and the buck always seems to stop with the landlords. And look, I, this may not be a popular view, but we as landlords provide lots of housing for lots of people in all of these cities that we choose to invest in. We pay a lot of property taxes, which, you know, we should. That's part of the game, right? But I feel like this is, and, and to be honest with you, I'm very disheartened because I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg of what I've seen in all of these other places that I've invested in. And, and I, I hate to say that because I still am very optimistic, not only about, uh, you know, our investment, but about, you know, providing, you know, an excellent uh, level of service for our tenants to be a good steward for Lawrence, Kansas. I'm very excited to be there. But this just has a feel of something that I have seen over and over again, where you guys are developing these, um, you know, these things in a, in, a, in a bubble, and you're not looking at all of the overall picture that something like this can affect. I mean, it affects property values. It affects, you know, all, all sorts of different things that have to be taken into consideration. And I don't think any landlord in Lawrence, Kansas, or anywhere else would tell you that they're actively trying to discriminate, discriminate against people. But we, we also have an investment that we have to protect, whether it's just for us or whether the people that invest with us. So there's got to be a, a better way of doing what you guys are trying to do without the, the buck always having to stop with the landlord. And Thank that's you, all I have to say. Do you want any response from that as well? Was there an actual question? I don't. I just, 
No, I just uh, again, I uh, as I said first on, I'm very I'm very new to Lawrence, and I just want you guys to leave this meeting with a little bit different perspective when you start to look at things down the road, and certainly take into consideration this particular ordinance because there are so many other things that this ordinance can affect. And it's your guys' responsibility to make sure that you look at the entire picture and not just one portion of the picture. Thank you. Noted. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Um, up next, I'm going to do Ron. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. My picture is not showing up here. So, I'm, and I'm not sure why, but that doesn't matter. Um, my wife and I have been landlords in Lawrence for 40 years. We have like seven single family houses that we rent in Lawrence. And we've seen a lot of, a lot of changes that one thing, I guess the first question is, you know, we found out about this by reading the paper uh, on the Monday before the meeting uh, last month. And uh, now you've already done the first reading of this law. So all that needs to happen is, is a second reading, which is what, next week? And uh, it'll be law. And all I don't want to know is what's the hurry? I don't think landlords have had a time, enough time, the landlords in this community have had enough time to respond, to give, you know, you did it, you studied it for two years. Surely landlords should have a chance to study it for a couple months at the, at the least, I would think. Somebody on the commission, I was at the commission and I also found out what uh, you have referenced that you shouldn't refer to uh, voucher tenants as those people. Well, I found out at the last uh, commission meeting that those people are, are, and I will quote some of the people that were there, those blood-sucking landlords. Now, that that's a pretty strong reference to landlords, those blood-sucking landlords. And you know, if you were there, you know it was said. And it was said, inferred many more times than that. There was just everybody was, uh, most of the people there were telling about how bad the landlords were. And most of them, a lot of them were homeless people. I understand that. I understand where that's coming from. But I'm just, I just think that you're getting in a hurry to do this. And I think it should be postponed for a month or so. So landlords could weigh in on it more than they are today. There's, this is, you know, you've had that. You have this meeting, but uh, I don't think it's they've been given a chance. And somebody talked about um, unintended consequences, and I think, as you know, other people have pointed out the consequence. It's going to be bad for landlords, and it's also going to be bad for tenants because it's going to force up rents. Um, you got people that are having investment. I'm giving a person that rents our houses a hundred to $200,000 property, at least according to the tax rolls. And I'm entrusting that to them. I'm trusting that they're gonna take care of that property. And I need to ensure that 
through an application process. And um, we have a lot of protected classes and that's okay. I think that's a good thing. We don't, we've never discriminated. We've never been called about discrimination. But I will give you a, a couple of examples of, of really. Ron, yes. that, that um, concludes your time. Did you want to be addressed by the panel? Yes. Uh, Ron, this is Zach Friedel. I heard a procedural question in there that maybe I can can help answer. So the question was about the timeline for this ordinance being passed. Um, this was first heard by the city commission uh, at their December 13th meeting. At that time, they uh, passed the ordinance on first reading and directed staff to have public engagement, which is why we're here today. And it will be back on their agenda on the January 17th meeting. Now, at that time, the commission has several options. They can pass the ordinance as it's drafted. They can ask for amendments to the ordinance they can defer the ordinance for further consideration or they can vote down the ordinance. So that's that's kind of where we are in the timeline and uh, more action will come at the January 17th meeting okay. where this feedback will be presented to commissioners. Can I ask? Ron, go ahead. Yeah, my question to you is what do you think the odds are that this is going to be deferred, that we're going to have a study, that we're going to let landlords weigh in. What do you just think that what's your gut feeling about what the odds are that that will happen? My feeling is this thing's going to be railroaded through at the next commission meeting. Ron, I'm not going to speculate on that. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Um, next up, I'm going to take uh, Mary Harmon. Mary, are you online? Do you hear me now? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. I was at the city commission meeting on December the 13th. There was a lot of discussion about vouchers for the homeless. It was also said that if we didn't accept the voucher for the homeless person and they complain, then we would be subject to $10,000 to $50,000 fine. I haven't heard any of this mentioned since I heard it at the meeting, haven't read it in the paper, wasn't on my yellow card. I would like to have uh, input on that, please. Mary, this is Zach Friedel. So um, the way this is enforced is through the Chapter 10 uh, anti-discrimination uh, ordinance. And so this goes through uh, a complaint process with an investigation by the Human Relations Commission or uh, Division, excuse me. Uh, and I might defer to somebody. Um, it, I don't know if Tony wants to jump in for the investigation process. Yes, there is an investigation and... Um a determination if there is a finding that probable cause or that there is evidence that discrimination could have occurred, then a note is sent out to both parties. The parties will have an opportunity then to elect whether they want to have the matter decided by the human relations, a panel, human relations commission, or uh, going to district court to have the matter uh, decided there. Um, in the years that I've been uh, in my position, most people do elect to go to district court. 
ability that if discrimination is found that civil penalties can be imposed. And there is a range set forth in the in our ordinance. Um, there are situations where um, if there's extraordinary uh, finding of discrimination that um, damages can be awarded to the tenant. Um, so that's in chapter 10 of the city code. What I understood was a homeless person would come with a voucher to rent my place. If I turn them away and if they complain, then I could be fined $10,000 to $50,000. And this was simply by turning down the homeless voucher. It was asked at the meeting, do the landlords have a choice to accept the voucher or not? The answer was yes. Later it was asked, what happens if they don't accept the voucher? And that's what was said. If they complain, they could be fined $10,000 to $50,000, and it could take 100 days for this to be accomplished. And of course, let's not forget that the landlord would have to hire an attorney. Well, Mary, just in response to that, I'd say again that penalties are not imposed until there has been due process and investigation that discrimination didn't occur. The finding would be made either by a judge in a court of law or by um, a panel of the Human Relations Commission. So there is a process. Penalties are not mainly because um, only because a complaint is filed. As we know, sometimes complaints are filed and there is not evidence to support the allegation. So um, I just wanna reassure you that there is a process, there is an investigation, there's an opportunity for the landlord's uh, side of the situation to be um, evaluated. And then there is a finding by an objective party before penalties are imposed. They also said at the meeting that we could not check criminal history. And so a homeless person comes, we cannot check their criminal history, their background history. And so if we turn them away, that is discrimination, correct? Oh, sorry, me again. Um, so again, that was just a proposal. Uh, that's of why you want to wait until you really know the language. A lot of rumors can spread. Their confusion can arise throughout the community as to what's being considered and what's not being considered. Um, so until you get the actual language that you want to use, it, it's not good to, to put it all out there. Uh, perhaps I made a mistake when I put out there the entire proposal at the Human Relations Commission meeting or at the AHAB meeting um, because it maybe caused some confusion as to what the city's considering here today the city is considering source of income, adding it to chapter 10. And that is all. And, and the only other thing I'd like to reiterate is you have the ability to select your tenant just because someone has a voucher doesn't mean you have to accept that particular tenant. You can have a, a screening criteria. That's for now, but after that, December 13th meeting, it sounded like to me this was going to be our future. All right. Um, thank you. Was thank you. Mary?
Thank you, Mary. Um, what were Ron? Can you mute? I, I keep having. Yeah, mute. I was just wondering if I could ask a question. Uh, we're we're actually going to take a break. We we are going to reconvene. Um, I'm going to let Hannah. We, we specified the meeting would run till 4.30, so we want to honor that for anyone who may need to leave. Uh, we are going to extend and stay on to keep answering questions, but if you need to go, please feel free. Um, and otherwise, we'll we'll push right ahead. Um, unless the panelists need a quick break, I would be respectful of bio breaks. Need a break? Okay, let's do a five-minute break, and then we'll reconvene. Before we break, though, um, if anybody has to leave and you feel like you have not had an opportunity to share your comments, please take an opportunity to to write something and leave it. We do want to forward as much feedback to the city commission as possible. We don't want to cut off or um, have you leave here feeling like you didn't have an opportunity to weigh in. So if you can't, if you don't want to write it, there's an email address that you can send it to, but, but please know that we want to accept your comments, your feedback, and we want to make sure that it gets to the city commission. So they have the full view of, of the community's opinion of this ordinance. And the note cards are available on the podium if you didn't have one on your seat. So, and there's pens there too. So we'll take a five minute break and we'll reconvene at 35 after. We're going to reconvene at question then we'll come we'll go to zoom for mickey's question and then we'll come back to the room looks like i've got three people currently on my sheet again if you're in the room and have a question raise your hand i'll bring the sheet to you uh, and then we'll see where we are okay all right mickey we're going to allow you to are you you hear me oh there you are yes yep. go ahead so i am reaching out the section um 10 11 through 10-111.3, it actually I think goes to 0.6. And this kind of refers to the real estate agent section of this ordinance. And I realize this is just a draft, I guess I need some clarification because the reading uh, by many people and the interpretation they are gaining from this and the way it's written um, isn't actually, uh, it can't work in a real life situation. The way these work, it talks about bona fide offers and presenting them when we cannot discriminate based on source of income, which is hard to do when a seller is the one making the decisions on a bona fide offer. They may have constraints on their side. They need to sell quickly, so they may choose a cash offer over a government-backed person or a person who has some kind of other income in there. So for us to be the ones to, to specifically call out realtors in that situation, it's not our decisions to make. The other thing that it talks about is advertising and disseminating this information out there where there may be homes out there that we are selling that are rental properties or not that may have conditions that would not allow us to sell to a government government backed person. Maybe the home is full of mold. The only person that can buy it would be a cash buyer. Um, because they cannot get any kind of loan at all. And that it's not clarative in its just way that it's written. It's written basically straight up that we cannot stop someone from because of their source of income. So if we can't advertise it and say this home can only go as a cash offer because it won't qualify for loans, according to this, we would now be in trouble for advertising in that direction. Um, the other part that it talks about over in 10-111.6, it talks about membership and use of, of the multi-list system. 
The multi-list system is not a public source. It's a communication between realtor associations and realtors themselves to let us know the basics of the house. So by talking about it in the situation as if it's something that a regular person on the street would use is inaccurate in and of itself. And to say that we can't talk about discrimination again, we may be having to market a property through this MLS system back and forth between agents again, I can a house will not go to government back loans and we will have to check boxes that say it's a cash only offer or it only can go conventional and that would limit us from being able to check those boxes to be informative to other agents. And I'm guessing, I guess I want clarification and what the intent of even having the real estate side of it in here and the way this language is, isn't applicable in the real world of real estate. And that's my questions. Hi, Mickey. This is Zach Friedel. So I think um, a couple of things. One, when we're talking about cash offer versus uh, government-backed offer, I think there could be a distinction between a form of payment and a source of income. And if the payment is in a, a cash offer, that would be a different form of payment than if it was financed. Uh, and that might be uh, something that we could talk about further to, to find clarification. That but that wouldn't apply to a realtor because a realtor doesn't work, but that would be a lender. So I don't know why yeah. it would be addressed to a realtor itself. We don't do with the financing side at all. Sure. Okay. And uh, for the remaining portion with uh, the multi-list system, that is a, we've prohibited discrimination and other forms in, in the multi-list system. And this was added to that. You know, I don't know that you'll let just anyone in. You surely have uh, some method for application to the multi-list system. And just as a, a, a landlord would have an application process. And this isn't to say that there couldn't be other requirements other than the source of income. Um, otherwise, I would say this is a good conversation going forward. Maybe not all these elements are applicable to landlords. It was put in here to be uh, inclusive and ensure that there isn't discrimination in this form. But it, if there are concerns about the workability of it, uh, we'd love to hear that feedback as well. Okay, because I guess when you get when you talk about advertising, right in the straight one, it talks about notices, dissemination of information. It's a pretty straightforward thing that there are situations where we would have to say, no, we can't use those kind of things because it's not a livable property. And that relates back to on the rental and landlord side. So if we get, let's say we only get one application for a landlord only gets one application for a property and it is a person with a voucher of some kind and the, the house has not been approved for section eight, V8, whatever that program is. And, but the landlord doesn't have the funding or the money to make all of the upgrades to bring it to whatever those things are. Maybe they just had a health situation. I realize I'm funneling down and being very specific, but again, if they don't have the finances because of something that's happened, are they gonna get in trouble because they didn't accept that person? And because they couldn't bring the house up to upgrades to maybe things that need to be done at that moment in time when that, that tenant showed up. Sure. I think this goes back to a landlord is never required to accept a voucher. And even if a, a tenant has a voucher, the um, property must be inspected by HUD to be up to standards. If the property isn't acceptable for the HUD, then they, the voucher will not be applicable and the, the landlord wouldn't face any penalty for that. That's just uh, wouldn't be an eligible tenant. And that, that's not discrimination based on source of income. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, so at this time, we're going to go back to the room and, and accept I'm sorry, someone. I just have a response. Okay, Katie has one, sorry. Um, I just want to uh, make you bring up a lot of good points. There are points that we heard earlier this week. Um, these points are being considered. You're not the first um, realtor-based um, question that we've gotten. Um, so I think that we are going back and looking. We've been doing some research the housing group has um, and, and seeing you know how it applies in real life. And, and I got some good education from the housing authority on that. Uh, but I don't think that we're done. Certainly not done. Obviously here today, we're going to make some, some uh, take under advisement what we've heard. But with regard to realtors, we do need to examine the real life implication and intent behind it. And, and there may be some exemptions we need to carve out. Uh, but that discussion is being had and uh, it's being had with um, realtors in town and um, people who represent realtors. So I think that we're good. If, if anyone wants to join the conversation, uh, maybe we can have a, a separate conversation offline and get, get more information from our realtor community. That'd be and great. I, I did want to add um, with regard to advertising. Um, I did learn some good information from the housing authority on, on advertising uh, source of income discrimination and advertising for sale. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll come back to the room. Um, the next person on my list is James. Hello, commissioners. I'm James Dunn. I have a couple of questions. Um, when, what, what, uh, this is for the housing authority group. Here. What would, what do you think the impact would be if this ordinance is passed, would it help that wait list in some way? I was kind of interested in that one. Yeah, I think so. Um, Katie mentioned that we do have a, a pretty lengthy wait list that uh, 18 to 24 months is for someone to receive a voucher. Uh, the vouchers that we have like out on the street in hand, we've seen an increase almost double uh, what we normally see. And so that has been quite concerning. We've also seen an increase in um, some, like I mentioned earlier, some sales of some larger complexes and then that, that turnover resulting in the uh, non-acceptance of vouchers. So that in those instances, I think this uh, particular ordinance would allow that uh, really intentional of no vouchers at all as a marketing tool that would change that. And that would, I think, level the, the playing field a little bit more. So I, I do think it'll change. Now, I will also say there is some conversation around different zoning and things like that. This is a step in a process. Is this going to solve the housing crisis? Absolutely not. Uh, and that's not the intention with this. I think the intention is to start creating some, some balance and, and allowing those folks that do have vouchers in hand that are searching for housing to have opportunity um, to get units. Okay, thank you. The uh, regarding source of income, I've had uh, I'm a private sector housing provider, and I've had people come to me with uh, sources of income being really a temp agency. And so they'll put down that that source of income, which is really based on a very short period of time. And I'm wondering how how the ordinance, what the impact of passing this ordinance would be on those that kind of a source of income, which is really a temporary source of income. And I thought we might get a little clarification about that piece. Well, um, 
comes back to you can have an application process if you ask for three months of income for every applicant, mm-hmm. and you could continue to do that. Uh, if if you, um, but it would be potentially a violation of law under this ordinance to just see temp agency uh, and not uh, accept the tenant based on that. Okay, so it'd be good to have a policy that says so many months. Let's set that up that way. Okay, correct. I have a question now for Trini Westcott, who hasn't weighed in on anything so far, and I'm wondering how code enforcement fits in with uh, this ordinance and what what might the impact be for your division. Well, I think the impact may be that we have a few less inspections to do in our department for rental housing, possibly. Um, I don't see any negative impact um, on our division. We work with the housing authority and always have um, their inspections closely mimic ours. Um, I don't see, I really don't see any impact other than they, you know, if there are more vouchers, but it doesn't sound like there will be more vouchers. Mm -hmm. um, So there will be zero impact. Okay, thank you. Katie, you might, I was wondering during this process today, we haven't heard about when, when the, when you, when the commission meets, you know, the, the timing of the commission meetings. And I'm also wondering, was, did all the commissioners, was it a unanimous vote of the commissioners to forward this ordinance as we, this proposed ordinance as we see today to the county, to the city commission? Yeah. So, um, when this was being considered over the last two years, this the Human Relations Commission actually met every month. Um, it was something that we were um, refocused, urged to refocus. And so we met every month um, starting in 2020. And we have, uh, when I was elected chair, reverted back to meeting quarterly. It was a lot of work for an all-volunteer commission um, to meet every month. But um, we uh, meet on the... So, third Monday of every quarter. We're, we're trying to do, we're going to 530. <laughs> let me, let me name the month. This is, this is the plan. So we want to do one February, then do quarterly after that. So it would be the third Thursday. If we can manage to do that, depending on, you know, scheduling and things like that. But we, we try to give enough notice and push out when those meetings are going to be because they are, they're definitely going to be held quarterly. So there's going to happen, you know, there's going to be four meetings a year, definitely. And then others are sometimes called in need of emergency or in need of, you know, mm-hmm. something needs to be addressed. So we haven't, um, we haven't laid out the next meeting specifically being that we put all this, she's, her team, the commission, the Human Relations Commission has been putting a lot of focus on this particular um, it's an issue right here, mm-hmm. this source of income. So we're going we're, we're definitely getting on back back on track with that. But those those meetings will be held. You know, you you know, you can look on the website at any time to see what days that will, what days will they'll be for that month or that quarter. Um, but, are, are you meeting then, here or are you meeting at the Carnegie building? Uh, I am not in charge of, I just receive the information. I don't make the information. Um, so usually we've been meeting here to allow for zoom capability, um, for people to still attend online, um, or a um, hybrid approach. I see. 
Um, and then, yes, to answer your question, this did pass unanimously. It also went to AHAB for consideration, and I believe the support of AHAB passed, AHAB passed to support this uh, unanimously as well. Okay. Katie, can you specify what AHAB is? <laughs> it's the um, Affordable Housing Advisory Board. You got it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Yes, thanks. By the way, I don't in favor of this. I don't think we need this. Or I don't think we need additional ordinances to provide housing and lots. Okay, uh, next up on my list is Chuck. Name is, <clears throat> my name is Chuck Yaley. My wife and I, we own five houses right now in Lawrence here. We rent out. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that the commissioners are not here, the city commission, because what's said between us, you, and your answers back, sometimes they don't always get back the same way. Not Can I respond to that just really quickly? I, I, I will, I'm city staff, so I am nonpartisan on this particular um, situation, but I definitely, I, literally, this is recorded. We have it word by word. We're, we have our note cards. You can send it to my email. Like we, we're definitely going to make sure that this all gets transmitted back to the city commission. If that is not, I'm giving you my word on that because that's what I'm here for <laughs> to make sure that that happens. Um, we do want to make sure that that communication is given directly to them. Okay. All right. Um, the biggest problem, and the question was asked tonight, why aren't more landlords participating in Section 8? We, own, we bought a property that has Section 8 tenants in it. To start with, I had a very good tenant, no problems. But she could not barely make her rent. And then you guys, for in your criteria, yanked part of her income. Then it falls back on me. I worked with the tenant numerous times. We, I'd call down there. My wife would call down there. I would go down to your office, and nobody ever would make contact with me. I don't know how many times. I don't have it all wrote down. You're not like. You're not going to like what I got to say here. But you guys give me a very bad taste in my mouth when it comes to a Section 8 house. Like I said, the tenant was great. I had no problems with her. We decided to sell the house, not because of that. And we actually gave notice because the lease was up. Probably worked with her almost six months until you guys could get her in another house. But like I said, it, it, it you rolled it all back on us. And I was very disappointed that you guys would not make any contact with us whatsoever. I know you're probably going to get on to me, but that's just exactly the way I feel about this deal. And my wife feels the same way. And uh, so anyway, why? I guess you can start in on me now. <laughs> no, uh, first, I just want to say thank you for working with our tenant, um, our mutual tenant. So a lot of times we're not going to be able to tell you like what, their private information is but the way we set the level of our subsidy is based on the information the tenant gives us about their income and we are prohibited from paying you know we have to pay according to federal regulation within the limits right so we don't have the discretion to go um, she's having a hard month we'll pay more we don't have that discretion um and so 
um, by regulation, we can only pay a certain amount. Um, it's an unfortunate situation. They have the ability to get recertified based on certain criteria, but that is not something that happens overnight. Um, and so, um, and we don't find they're our, I mean, we don't have custody of them. We, they have to find their own unit. So when you're talking about, we didn't find her another unit, we, that's not part of our obligation. That with a voucher, that is the tenant's obligation to find another location. And, the, and that kind of gets the part of the problem here, which is she probably ran into a really hard time finding another landlord who would take a Section 8 voucher. And so that process got stretched out. And I appreciate you working with her because it puts low-income individuals in a really tough spot when they have those kind of situations happen. Like I said, ma'am. And 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 I'm saying thank you, and I and I'm saying thank you because that she was in a tough spot, and I mean we're a little bit hamstrung in how we can help, and and so are you, right? You have to make your mortgage. So, Cassandra, oh, yeah, we need to please use the microphone whenever we can so that and folks I, on Zoom. Yeah, and I I I'll say well personally I apologize for for not answering your call appropriately. I think that that is something that we have been working on and improving and in myself and my position I have uh, offered to be that resource in connection in fact I have a lot of cards here if you want to take one anybody um, but you know as an organization that is continuing to thrive to provide good customer service and good partnership to our landlords we can only improve on that and so I, I hear you and I definitely appreciate all that you've done and we will take that back with us and we will do better we are we do have a hard stop at 5 15 and i want to respect that some people have gotten in line to ask questions so we are going to move on if you'd like to get on the list please let me know uh, next on my list is hugh carter Thank you. Oh, just a few comments and then a couple questions. I know several of you, several I don't though, so just so you know where my comments come from. Um, we've been 40 year landlords of Section 8 housing. My father got into it in the 1980s. We don't have a lot, it's trimmed down a bit over the years, um, but uh, been happy to continue to do that. We've had overall uh, pretty good experience. Um, we have challenges regardless of who the, the tenant is anyway, is all, all landlords. So it's not an, e not an easy thing. Um, in fact, we have an original tenant from back when I had an Afro and managed the properties 40, <laughs> 40 years ago. Um, so, you know, and, and in fact, in my day job at the Chamber of Commerce, I, I, I worked as well with the Housing Stabilization Collaborative, the Housing Authority, Tenants to Homeowners, and uh, Family Promise. I think I got probably a good dozen landlords and apartment complexes that would not accept folks through that uh, program to accept them. Um, gave them my cell and assured them if they had a problem to call me um, and 
to date, I didn't get a call on, on those. So, so I know it does work. It can be a bit of an echo chamber when people have bad experiences that gets passed around. And that's why I think, you know, where I'm heading is that the challenge is for landlords, you're going to hear those experiences. Um, and it, and it, anytime something's brought to you as an ordinance or there's an enforcement piece to it, it's very much, it's not welcome, of course. Um, it's not going to have the right, the, the positive embraced uh, um, response uh, from landlords. That's why it's, it's I'd really like to see a, a concerted effort, more concerted effort, and whether it's a convening and, and really ongoing process of looking at what can we do from an incentive standpoint. Um, you know, echoing, echoing uh, Eric Kirkendall and, and others' comments along those lines. Um, so, so a couple of questions, because I do think, especially when it comes in the form of an ordinance or an enforcement type action, the unintended consequence is going to be, well, risk mitigation, or there's going to be something I'm going to offset this with. And I think we're going to see some increases in rents as a response to this, which, of course, is not what we're looking to do. So a, a couple of questions is one. Um, this is. Uh, I think I'm confused on this. So the vouchers themselves can be used for properties. Each year you set a range based on what the current market is. But if a property is above that range, can someone still use a voucher and pay the difference? So they can. Um, because I had had heard from landlords, uh, some of them fairly large, that, well, we're just going to raise our rents above that. And, and of course, that would be terrible. Then that's a that's a real thing. So that still doesn't prevent them. The the, the tenant's just responsible for the difference. Um, the second one is uh, sorry, Tony. I didn't give you a heads up on this, but you might know. From an incentive standpoint, we got into the business based on an incentive um, back in the '80s. I've looked forever into that incentive, and it turns out I believe it was federal because it was an it was a tax credit. So if you renovated homes, you got a hundred percent of it in a tax credit if you put it into Section 8, mm -hmm. which would scale up hugely. Um, we can't really do that income tax credits with locally. So I wonder from a uh, local standpoint, uh, is there an ability, is there anything legally that prevents us from doing, say, an NRA, a neighborhood revitalization area based on a housing type where we could do a tax abatement uh, based on houses that are Section 8? versus just a location? Well, yes, I think the, the NRA, the National uh, the Rehabilitation Act, might be a vehicle. Um, Hugh, we haven't researched the incentive side of, of this discussion, so I wouldn't want to give out incorrect uh, information. But I think if that is raised, the commission could very well direct us to look at an incentive program um, in uh, along with this or instead of this. So. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you very much. I, I just feel like there's a potential to really scale this up. Thank you. Thanks, you. Okay, next up is Linda Long. Hey guys, thanks for extending the meeting to accommodate us. Um, my husband and I have had rental properties for over 20 years. Um, all of our houses are on the east side of town. I want to make note that we knew nothing about this ordinance or anything until we got the postcard in the mail. You guys have got our email. You guys have got our phone numbers. And until two days ago, we knew nothing about this. So I strongly believe something should have been done to notify us, especially within two years. Somebody dropped the ball on that one. 
Um, also, do we have any idea of how the other states that have implemented this, how long have they implemented it for, and how long has the study been going on with them? And then also, um, I also wanted to know, um, can somebody explain all the different vouchers to us? There's been two mentioned tonight. I don't know if there's others out there that are going to be wrapped up in this. And then also, um, we work full-time jobs. So in working full-time jobs, we don't get home, I assume, until after your hours are closed down. So if we have an issue, we have no way of getting hold of you guys because we work the same hours you probably do. So how, how is that rectified? Just shoot us an email. Yeah. And yeah, we, we'll make every effort to, to be in contact with you. Email, phone call. You know, I we work full time. I have landlords who work full time who, who just give me a call and I answer that. We have a responsibility to respond within, you know, I make it a personal policy to respond within 48 hours. So um, that is something I work very closely with our landlords. I make sure if, if they're needing to connect with me that, that I make every effort to do so. So I, I don't want that to be a worry for you at all. And I think, Katie, I don't know if you want to answer the, <laughs> you have the data, but I, I'll talk about vouchers and Katie after Katie. Yeah. So um, when you, what was your questions? Can you um, maybe narrow down the question or specify it? I'm, when this was studied in other cities and states, how long did it take? What was well, the question? Well, like the question I'm trying to ask is like, how long has Oregon had this in place? Sure. So there are different states. I don't have it right in front of me. I'm so sorry. Um, but there are various states and then some cities within the states had them longer. The very first source of income non-discrimination ordinance was enacted in 1971. Um, so I, I, I can tell you that without having to dig in. I can certainly provide a response for you in writing, um, but it's been studied for quite a while. Um, what was the question about how long did I, it take? I just wanted to make sure that this wasn't something that like Oregon started last year. Oh, right. And then sure, we're pulling no. from that and saying, oh, it's working. Yeah. Some of the studies cited in the, the packet bundle that was hyperlinked through a hyperlink through a hyperlink um, on the agenda from the December 13th meeting. It's about 400 about pages. Okay. Um, so it's about 400 pages. Um, it has that information and it has all the research that we relied upon in there. Um, so you can go back and maybe if you have a specific question, you can look through there as a searchable table. It was done. It was very well done by our, um, the housing group. And then, um, it, it has the, the research that discusses what happens when a city enacts a source of income ordinance. Um, how long does it take? to see real results. Um, and I think just like Marielle said, and just like the gentleman said who owns properties in other cities, it's a, it's a very small piece. We're not gonna solve homelessness and we're not going to solve a housing issue by this ordinance. It is a tool in the toolkit to assist, to reduce wait times for vouchers and, um, you know, and to open up housing access. That is the very, very small piece of this tremendous economic puzzle that we're trying to do here today. 
And I'll, I'll quickly answer your question, but if you have, if you want more detail, please see me after or, or we can chat offline. But um, as far as voucher types, you know, within our program, we have quite a different, you know, varying programs. I won't go into detail. The only thing that you'll need to worry about on our side is it is a subsidy to you. So um, we have families, folks who are disabled, folks who are on fixed income. We do have folks experiencing homelessness. So it is a variety of folks, but think of it as just like one subsidy. Um, so there will not be a difference in like the way that payment happens or the contract that you sign um, that I think that is probably the simplest answer for that but as far as housing authority goes uh, it's just providing and administering subsidy okay but you guys I'm, I'm just trying to be clear here and I'm not trying to be mean or rude you guys are basically targeting lower rent houses for this program so if we had a house that rented for 1800 a month chances are we wouldn't even have to deal with this so so we we do we're not targeting anything we are provided particular subsidy at about 40 percent of the fair it's called a fair market rent and so we have a payment limit set by the federal government of to what we can subsidize so we're not targeting anything um, but yes, the vouchers are used in primarily in units that would be considered affordable at 50% of the market or below of the rental market. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Linda. Okay, we're gonna go over to Zoom, which looks like we have two raised hands, and then I have one on my list. Then we'll probably be looking towards wrapping up if there are any more burning questions so that everyone can go have some dinner. So over to Kalina. All right. Um, I'm just going to take two more off online. There, this looks like more being added as we speak, but we are at a hard cutoff of 5:15. So I'm going to try to get Alan, and then actually we've changed that. Okay. We want to make sure everybody gets their questions asked. <laughs> I'm here for it. That's what we're trying to. I'm here for it. To stay longer if we need to. So I'm going to do. This is the the what we're going to do, and just remember to try try to you know be fair to others that have been waiting a long time, but. About three minutes apiece, Alan, then Rachel, then Kelly, but let's stop in between to allow some time for um, the panel discussion. So Alan, go ahead and go. Oh, well, good new, uh, new year to everybody. Um, my name's Alan, I'm the landlord of five, 40 years. Um, I was wondering what would jeopardize the tenant's subsidy or their voucher? Would uh, damages, smoking or pets, and then, uh, a comment about the risk factor, I think is very different for subsidized recipients over conventional qualified people. Um, if there's damages above and beyond the deposit, um, what recourse do we have if you're not going to back them up? Um, we can't garnish a wage if they don't have a wage, uh, go to court, but if they don't have money, there's nothing to get. So I think it's a real problem. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems with landlords is the uncertainty of the damage issue because it does happen. I've had units, you know, with tenants where there's damages above and beyond and you got to take them to court, uh, whatever you can do to try to get whole again. So that's a comment I have about that. Um, 
And that's about all I have. Thank you. Yeah, so um, as we said before, um, you're able to have whatever criteria. So if you require a guarantor for all of your tenants, then you can also require that for a voucher holder. Um, otherwise, the risk is the same um, with any voucher holder as it is with a normal tenant. Um, and so there's, I mean, there's really no difference. Um, and I think I, as I mentioned before, I mean, two thirds of everybody we assist are on a fixed income, either social security or social security disability. So um, that would be no different than anybody else um, in the community. There are many, many people in the community who that's their source of income and they, they don't receive assistance. Um, and then all of our other participants are working. We have a work requirement. And so, um, so what, so it's not accurate what you're saying, sort of the comment about they, there would be no recourse. It's not accurate. The, the, only, just, the only additional thing, Alan, the only other thing I'll, I'll add to that is you go through the, the same process with every tenant. So if you um, file lease violation or you issue an eviction notice, it is the same process. So if you have non-payment of rent, of a tenant who doesn't have a voucher, it's going to be the same result as a tenant who does have a voucher. So I, I want you to, to, I want everybody to, to consider that it is the exact same process. And I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I just didn't feel like they would have as much skin in the game or enough, you know, um, something to back them up if things go wrong. Um, was my comment. And then if you could, if somebody could comment about what does jeopardize their subsidy, that's really the only thing that they have in danger there is losing their voucher. Yeah, and and um, what happens there is you at that point we start saying your is going to be then we end up uh, generally providing them a hearing um, about their voucher being terminated. And um, I can tell you because I'm the hearing officer that routinely I will not allow them to keep their voucher unless they make an agreement to make the landlord whole. Um, the people who are in the audience who work with us, I require people to come up with a housing stabilization plan. And part of that is a way to pay the landlord back if they've caused damage. Okay. All right, next, we gotta keep moving. Thank you. Who's next on Zoom? Rachel. Yep. Hi there. Um, Hi. Does everybody hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Um, anyway, uh, I would also like to agree with a couple of people back that they're disappointed the city commission isn't there. I'm pretty upset by that too. Um, I've emailed them last month after the first meeting and I received responses from two people. So let it be known when they, they go through the records, which I doubt they will, but I'm really disappointed that three of those people couldn't even be bothered to get back to me. 
even with the, just an email. Um, so then I'd like to start out saying that this proves the need for a landlord's association in this town. So anybody that's listening to this, I think we should get together and have a talk. Um, the failure to get the message out about the meetings to everybody that's affected has been really problematic. Um, we got a postcard, which is great, but snail mail is not always reliable and I hate relying on the USBS. We have emails, we have phones, get a hold of us every which way you can, just so it's redundant. Anyway, um, this meeting is also problematic in its timing. I have three jobs. My husband, who is a former city commissioner, he has at least three jobs and he is working right now. He is picking up our kids. So this is like the worst timing for a meeting we could ever have. So not ideal there. So I would love a little bit of a variation on when we can meet because yeah, during the workday, I work. Um, I'd also like to fill in my perspective on having worked with Douglas County Housing Authority. We did several years ago and I have very mixed feelings about it. Um, we've run rentals for 15 years now. Uh, we have worked with voucher recipients and I'm not opposed to it. I actually really like that this is coming forward, but I have some major issues with it. Several years ago, we worked with a tenant who needed vouchers. We were open to it um, because it was a gut and flip house. It was basically brand new. We failed inspection. They failed us because our brand new windows didn't have a screen in both sides because they're a slider. Uh, we had to do a bunch of workarounds to make that happen. It wasn't ideal. Um, we also had a shed in the backyard that they failed us on because it was uninhabitable, which it's a shed. No one's going to live in a shed. So our compromise was that we had to padlock it and make it unaccessible for the renter. Well, the renter immediately went and clipped the padlock so it was open and usable to them, as I would expect them to use it to. So that wasn't ideal. We worked on it. It was fine. Whatever. Um, so inspections, I have some big hesitations with how these inspections are going to work, but I'm willing to work with it. Um, the biggest thing, and this is what I would have a major question about, is how are payments being done? Because one of the major reasons we left working with the Douglas County Housing Authority is payments. They, when we signed up, they said that they would mail us the check every month. Fine, not great. I hate when I have to deal with the USPS again. They're slow, they're unreliable, and I never know when I'm going to get paid. And I have clients that expect to be paid out in a reasonable time. So I never knew if I was going to get that payment from them, you know, on the first, never, or on the 10th. Um, they told me when I signed up that direct deposit was happening in a couple months. And I checked in multiple times over the years we worked with them and it never happened. So uh, that's why we left. If I can't get paid regularly in a in a expected time frame. I need to be able to be charging late fees and I can't charge that to the housing authority. So um, if this goes through, please, please, please make sure that direct payments are gone or go through. Um, and that's it. Thank you. Hi Rachel. Hi, Rachel. We do have direct deposit now. 
So you are able to receive your uh, housing assistance payments through direct deposit. Um, there is in the contractual agreement that we cut checks. So we issue checks on the 1st or the 15th of every month. And those, you know, if it's a check, it does have to go through mail, but they do have to go out on the second business day uh, of every month. But with direct deposit, you will get it hit on the 1st of the month. So that is okay. now implemented, okay? Finally. All right. Thank you. And then lastly, Kelly online. Hi, um, thanks. I was one of the last ones putting my hand up. Just a couple of quickies. Are there generic copies of those subsidy contractual agreements available to see even if we're not part of the program at this juncture? Because it might diffuse the uncertainty of what those actually contain and entail. And then folks could see if they had any questions on those actually addressed by the department before the city commission on the 17th. And then secondary, I thought you actually have a new landlord incentive program already in place, don't you? Hi, Keely. Uh, first question, yes. Our uh, housing assistance payment contract is available to view on our website. If you go to ldcha.org, scroll down to the landlord tab, there is a form link and that has uh, an example of the contract that you can review. I've also provided landlord packets tonight for those in the audience that has that contract on it as well, if you'd like to review that. Um, and then we do have incentive programs right now. Yes, I mentioned that earlier. There are incentives to sign on to our program, um, to uh, get a unit onto our program and have at least with the tenant. We also have damage mitigation and we have more funding that we were able to implement through our own uh, budgetary process and through grants we applied for. So there is incentive and I am pushing it very, very hard because I want to use those dollars. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for the directive on where I can find it on the website. And if I have any other questions, I will ask them later. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we have one left in the room. That's Janet. Um, I just need a clarification on a couple of things. Um, early on, somebody was up here talking about um, apparently they had rentals down on Tennessee or Kentucky streets and it was zoned different or um, they could have more tenants in the apartments, and I just needed to clarify that. What? Sure, I'll take that. Um, so in the city's land development code, there's occupancy regulations and guidelines. So any um, house, apartment, house mostly, that's in single family zoning or a planned uh, development, cannot have more than three unrelated people. Right. Um, Multi-family zoning, <clears throat> pardon me, can have up to four. Now, is that apartments, multi-family? Yes. Usually, um, there there are some single-family homes located in multi-family zoning, but it's mostly um duplexes, triplexes, and apartment buildings. I will say that when we count those individuals, minors, children do not count towards that number. So it's really apartments and townhomes, duplexes versus the single, fam the single family houses. It's not particularly a section of town. No, 
Okay. No, it depends on the zoning designation. Okay. And then also, uh, we were wondering if um, when people apply for vouchers, do you counsel them on um, or recommend to them if they um, if they should rent a $1,000 home or a $1,400 or what's that based on? Because sometimes uh, we told our tenant, you know, that, you know, maybe she needed to look for something less expensive when she couldn't afford her portion. Yeah, and we'll generally tell them what, what the housing assistance will be. And we, we recommend people don't pay more than 30% of their income for housing. So when you add kind of those two numbers together, that gives them a range. We do let people sort of go up to 40% when they initially lease up. Um, but we, we definitely recommend people not be housing burdened um, by spending more than, you know, between 30 and 40% of their income on mm -hmm. housing. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Janet. Okay, I'm going to pass it over to Tony for a few uh, closing remarks. Okay, thank you very much, everyone, for coming today and for asking some really good questions and for um, giving our panel an opportunity to respond. Again, I know the City Commission is interested in hearing from um, everyone on this topic. So again, we would encourage you, if you don't feel like you've had an opportunity to fully express your comments, you can leave a card or you can uh, send in an email. I want to just tell you what the next steps are with regard to this ordinance so that you know what's coming down the pike. Again, Tuesday, January 17th, the city this will be on the City Commission's regular agenda. Their meetings generally start at 5.45 p.m. Um, at that time, the Commission, um, along with other business, will consider this the ordinance in its current form, which is um, 9960. They have options available to them. They can pass it on second reading in its current form without any changes. And if that was the case, then um, after it is published in the newspaper, after it's published according to law, then it would be effective on that date. The other options that they have available to them is they could adopt the ordinance with changes. Um, and again, if um, the changes are, are you know, not substantial, then those would also be effective upon publication. They could, however, also um, request that the matter be deferred so that further work could occur or further research could be done. And they could either defer it indefinitely or for a specific period of time. That will be a decision for the city commission to make. And then um, they could decide to um, vote against the ordinance and then um, this particular ordinance would, would be at an end. So those are the, the options that are available to the commission. Again, um, January 17th is an important date. So if you're interested in this topic, um, that is the date for you to um, key in on. The city's agenda is available on our website. That's www.lawrenceks.org. And um, I think we have some contact information on this card. So um, again, thank you for coming out tonight, for taking time to share uh, your thoughts with us. Um, as was said tonight, this was recorded and it will be available for viewing um, not only by the city commission but by others me other members of the public and um, with that i'll close i'll close down my comments and again thank you very much for coming